I'm Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour from Mail Plus. I'm joined this week as every week by my friend and co-host Imogen Edwards-Jones, who is in Ibiza. Ibiza. Boiling pot. Is and it? Like it's sort of pickled beetroot. <laughs> well, it's quite a stressful week for us because we've got the A-level results. I saw in yesterday's newspapers, we're recording this on a Monday, I should tell the listeners, I saw in Sunday's newspapers that Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary, has decided in her infinite wisdom that this is going to be the year that they decide to rectify the so-called grade inflation that happened as a result of COVID, which means that all of our children who have taken their A-levels this year are going to be downgraded. So that's going to be lovely for us, isn't it? Yeah. My son gets his results on Thursday and your daughter gets her results on Thursday. Yes, yes, there's quite a lot of tension in my house. It's quite a lot of sort of sharp behaviour. I think they're really feeling it. I also think it's deeply unfair because they haven't even been in school for three years due to COVID. And they've also not been examined ever in the public arena. So they've got no idea. No, these are their first public examinations. I mean, my son did a few because he did a couple of GCSEs early. So he had a little bit, but I mean, he was 14 or something. And then they had COVID and now they're being punished because last year and the year before all the other students got their marks up. I'm actually quite angry about it. I think it's really unfair. And also there's this whole thing at the moment where they were saying that 30% of students are dropping out of university because they can't cope with the degrees because of the grade inflation. I just think that's rubbish. The reason kids are dropping out of university is because A, their grants don't even cover their accommodation anymore. So they basically can't afford it. B, the government is charging them 7% interest on student loans. And C, they're all having to work in order to survive. So of course they're not, they haven't got as much time to spend on their degrees because they're having to get jobs. Also D... Nobody's teaching them anyway because they're mostly yeah, on they're strike. On strike. I mean, last year, my daughter was in her first year at university. I think she, the whole of February was pretty much on strike. Also, nobody's marked their degrees anyway. My goddaughter left last week. She's been given a first. Nobody's ever, ever read her dissertation at all. No, some of them haven't even had their degrees given to them yet. Yes. They've just been sort of told that they finish, but they can't give them a mark because they're on strike. And the other thing that's happening is a lot of the lecturers are marking papers and essays using AI. What? I did not know that. Yeah, they're just using AI. They're just using programs to just go through essays. So what's the allure? So you come out massively in debt, having learnt nothing. You can see why people aren't applying or are leaving or are dropping out. Yeah. I mean, the idea that somehow this cohort of A-level students should be penalised because of all of that is ridiculous. Yeah. I'm just, it's, you know, they've all worked incredibly hard. Well, I mean, my son worked incredibly hard. I'm sure your daughter worked incredibly yes, hard. Yes, she did, yeah. You know, they have virtually no teaching for the last sort of three years. Yes. Because of these ridiculous lockdowns. And now Gillian Keegan has decided that she needs to rectify it. Anyway, we've got all that off our chest. So here's something nice for listeners. We talked to Wendy Holden and here she is. A few weeks ago, we welcomed Wendy Holden to the show to give us her recommendations for summer reads. But we've invited her back to talk about her new book, The Princess, which is the third and final in her series of historical books about what she calls disruptive women in the House of Windsor. Wendy joins us now. Wendy, I can't believe that's the final one because obviously then you haven't done Meghan Markle. The most yes, disruptive. No. Oh, <laughs> no. Yes, you'd be good on her. <laughs> well, well, she would be a great subject. The only thing is, I don't think um, we're far enough away from her to see what her significance is. The thing about Diana is that now it's a generation since she died. 
And so we're able to see her as a, as a historical figure, which is why I thought she'd be a great subject, or one of the reasons why I thought she'd be a great subject. I think, I think Megan may be the same, but I think we'd have to give her 25 years and then look at her. Wendy, how do you begin? Because obviously there's so many articles written about Princess Anna and so many books. How do you begin to sort of unpick the subject? And obviously a lot of this was pre her being famous. So were you just looking at back issues of Tatler? Not so much. I mean, I was interested in her early years. And that's really because they're the years that aren't so well known. And also, I'm really interested in this whole idea of people who are really completely unknown, and then they get to a point where they become stratospherically famous. And with Diana, I sort of wondered what that point was. And from there, I sort of worked back through this incredible story until I'd started to write the book and research it. I had no real understanding of just how complicated and difficult and sometimes farcical a journey it was from, you know, being a schoolgirl to St Paul's Cathedral because so many people were involved. It was so um, complicated with this. It was like a sort of social grand national. You know, she had to jump over all these hurdles which so many people before her had fallen at and she sailed over them all but it was all tricky and one of the I think one of the reasons she was able to do it was that she really believed that she was madly in love and that Prince Charles was you know fantastic which the others hadn't been quite so starry-eyed about and also the fact that it was so completely the opposite of how it looked so that wedding day which the rest of us looked at it was so glamorous, it was so romantic, everything was so perfect. But the actual situation was almost, it wasn't just a bit different, it was almost a complete reversal of how it appeared. And so I became more and more drawn into this drama of appearance and reality at this child in the middle of this very complicated machine where so many people were pushing this relationship forward, all for their own reasons, all for different reasons. So it just became more and more interesting the more I got into it. And of course, it's not so well known how that all happened. So it was a bit like a sort of detective story in a way. So I wonder, do you think, Wendy, that there's any comparisons between Diana and other sort of lambs to the slaughter in history? I always sort of think of the very young wives of kings being, Mm. you know, groomed and manipulated and used by courtiers. Do you discover any of that in your book? Is there an element of that? I think there definitely would have been. But what was so interesting about Diana, and the reason why I would want to write about her than any other Lanterless Slaughter, I suppose, is that this all happened in the 1980s. So it's a sort of medieval story of this very innocent girl who had to be a virgin and all this sort of other medieval stuff. And it just seems incredible that that happened so recently in time. It was the modernity of her situation, the fact that she was, you know, a young girl about town, living with her friends in a flat, and yet marrying into this absolutely inflexible, unchanging institution, which had really been that way for, you know, hundreds of years, and it wasn't about to change for her. And she just, you know, ended up stuck in, well, she literally moved into Buckingham Palace. And that was actually one of the starting points for me. I sort of looked at the time frame, and I thought, Okay, so they got engaged in February 1981, end of February. And then 
she moved into Buckingham Palace, but she didn't get married until the end of July. So I thought, what happened for those five months? It's five months. It's a long time. I mean, when you're that age, five days is a long time, you know, five hours. Yeah. What did she do for five months? And so when I started to work out that she'd basically been stuck there and nothing had happened and nobody had taken much notice of her at all. And she was so sad and lonely that even the footmen took pity on her and bought her McDonald's and all the rest of it. At that time, she was the focus of the interest and obsession of the whole world in the middle of this huge interest, this huge thing that was going on around the royal wedding was this girl all on her own rattling around this enormous building right in the middle of London. And wasn't she allowed to have any friends or her parents? Obviously, I've written a novel. It's not biography. But it seems as if what actually happened was that the press were completely obsessed with her. So after the engagement, she was the focus of global press interest. They ran up and down the street after her, causing a lot of trouble for her, for her friends, but also for the royal family. And so the royal family started to get annoyed about it because, say, if Lady Diana had gone to Sandringham for Christmas, which she did before the wedding, the press would follow her to the gate and they'd sort of interrupt Prince Philip's shooting weekends and they'd go into places that they hadn't gone before. So the royal family started to find that their privacy was interrupted. And Diana, or at least the Diana in my novel, starts to be worried about this because she feels that she's upsetting them and she's annoying them and she's desperate to please them. She's desperate to be the best possible Prince of the Wales, the best possible daughter-in-law, the best possible addition to the family. And so she takes a sort of self-denying ordinance, which I think is more or less what happened. She decided to in, that they would be able to protect her in inverted commas if she moved into the palace and she moved out of her flat. And so she left her flat with all her friends, all this lovely, slowly, fun life that she'd had, and she went to live in Buckingham Palace. And I think she believed, she hoped anyway, that the Windsors would then help her. You know, they would say, come in, we're going to show you how to be princess. This is how it works. This is what you wear. This is what you say. This is how you wave. But actually that didn't happen. And I think she was so embarrassed about it and so sort of horrified and so worried that having her friends around and having them see how miserable she was would just exacerbate these, these, these feelings of complete terror and that she was doing the wrong thing. So it became a sort of impossible situation that, that either she could have not got married or she could have got married, but there wasn't really any, anything else. So, I mean, that's what happens to the Diana in my novel. And of course, the thing is, she probably really would have needed her friends at that time. And it actually would have been really handy for her to be surrounded by her mates. She definitely would have needed her friends. And they were worried about her completely. And they, but they probably would have said to her, this is not a good idea. Was that the scene that's in The Crown when she's roller skating, listening to Duran Duran all round Buckingham Palace? Yes, I think it probably is. Yeah. Was The Crown useful to you research-wise? Yes, it was. It was useful. It was interesting to see how they'd done it. But she did have a few people in Buckingham Palace. I mean, for example, her her dancing teacher came to see her a couple of times. This woman who had this wonderful name, she's called Lily Snip. And Lily Snip turned up to give her a couple of you know ballet lessons and she went swimming and that kind of thing but it was basically very 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 lonely and there was a famous lunch she had with her sisters just before the wedding in which uh, she was sort of I think hinting at some of what she'd been going through and maybe she shouldn't go ahead with it and her sister Sarah you know famously said oh it's too late now Dutch she faces all the tea towels so that was that her faces all the tea towels so she went ahead with it. Your book is a novel, it's not a biography, but but I mean, how much of it is 
is real. Well, I stick closely to the time frame. I dramatise all the actual events, but of course, what they are actually like, you could say. But I was just interested in this idea of the, of the Grand National, of the various different stages that she had to go through. So, for example, the Richie Marion Pinstiles, the starting line, you might say, would be the polo. That was where Royal Girlfriends were normally launched, where they would make their first appearance. And, of course, the finishing place was Westminster Abbey, as everybody thought it would be, turned out to be St Paul's. But in between, there were all these other things that um, were, were necessary, such as staying at Balmoral, going to Cowes. And I started to look at those and try to imagine what they would really have been like for a teenage girl in you know, the late 1970s. So, for example, obviously Balmoral, there's imagined material about what it's like at Balmoral. People who've been there have talked about it. But I thought, why do I find out what it was like on the Royal York Britannia? But there was all sorts of sources, all kinds of books that I picked up where I found uh, you know, sort of details about the cabins and about uh, you know, what's on the walls and what you would do and the fact that you know, Prince Charles would go water skiing and Prince Andrew would go out in a speedboat, all this kind of thing. But also really hilarious things such as um, apparently Prince Philip, who was a, a complete genius at inventing things that only very rich people would uh, you know, have a problem with, such as the famous picnic trailer that he invented for Balmoral that you can stick on the back of your Land Rover and take to a distant body without any need for any staff, the whole thing. <laughs> so, you know, obviously you would need, the, the body would need to be prepared and all the food would need to be, be put in it. But once that was done, all you needed was a Land Rover and a vast estate in Scotland. I just tried to imagine what it would be like. I think it would be quite funny. But also, her own family were quite eccentric, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, she wasn't from the wrong side of the tracks, no. was she? No. So, you know, you might have thought that she'd have fitted in quite well with the royal family. Yes. And I think one of the things that went wrong, one of the assumptions that the royal family made was because she came from such an incredibly grand family as the Spencers, you know, front rank aristocrats really closely connected to the royal family for hundreds of years, that she would have a really good idea of what being a Prince of Wales entailed. But because of her upbringing, which was quite sort of scrappy, you know, her parents divorced in hideous circumstances when she was little, she spent most of her formative years growing up with her father, who was a bit reclusive. She didn't see much of her mother. She had a very difficult childhood where nobody showed her how to have conversations, you know, how to run a house, how to do all the things, how to greet people, how to do all the things that the Princess of Wales has had to do. I imagine the Windsors just assumed that she would know all this, but she didn't. You know, she absolutely had no idea. So it was kind of mutual misunderstanding. But yeah, her childhood was awful um, because of the divorce, which famously had a, a lasting... In- what was so bad about it? Well, there were lots of things that were bad about it, but one of the really awful things, which is a surprise to me, I don't know how if this is well known, that her grandmother, Lady Fomoy, gave evidence against Diana's mother at the divorce hearing. She she said that her own daughter was an unfit mother, which must have been, you know, horrific because that was her grandmother, Diana's grandmother, saying that her mother was an unfit mother. But it has been suggested that one of the reasons for that was that Francis Spencer married Peter Shank Kidd. He owned a wallpaper company. And I think he was very wealthy, but he was essentially in trade. He wasn't an aristocrat. And Lady Fomoy wanted the children, the four Spencer children, to stay with their father and the title. So that was the reason it has been suggested that she gave evidence against her daughter to make sure that Francis lost custody of the children and they stayed with their father, which is what happened. 
what was your best nugget that you found about Princess Diana? I think my favourite bits are her sort of slony years. She obviously was so happy when she lived in that flat in Kensington with her flatmates. And I just sort of love all the kind of details about that, how they, you know, she had a post with Sting in the kitchen and she loved to watch Crossroads and eat Harvest Crunch cereal and just, you know, read Daily Mail and just had a completely normal, fun time. I think those were my favourite things, really. The really kind of ordinary girl about town details. Was that during her chief chick years? It was during her chief chick years. She owned the flat. It was her flat. So she was a landlady. And so she used to, you know, um, organise the rotor for the cleaning mm. and tell them all the others what to do and get quite cross to them if they didn't, you know, leave it spick and span. She was in charge of the rotor for cleaning. She ran the place. And it's just such a lovely thought, you know, it's just so normal. All those bits of the novel were my favourites to write. I always wanted to write about her slowly years because I think her friends gave her a lot of support. It must have been really difficult to leave them and move into Buckingham Palace and she must have missed them so much. So did she leave school when she was 16 and just move into the flat when she was 17 then? Yeah, essentially. I mean, she left school, then she went to finishing school in Switzerland, but she didn't like it very much because everybody spoke French which she didn't like. She was very good at French and so she was very miserable and she came home early. She started to do a few things like take cookery courses and do a bit of nannying, that sort of thing. But yeah, essentially, she wanted to be in London. When she first left school and came back from the finishing school, she was in the country, but she she knew she wanted to go to London. She wanted to be there. She wanted to be with her friends having a fun time. But it's very young when you think about it, isn't it? Yeah, it's very young. Absolutely. Very, very young to be living. I mean, nowadays, children never leave home, certainly not when they're 17, 16. I mean, the idea <laughs> of... No, yours gr- don't. <laughs> mind it. The idea of a group of girls living together in a flat in... It was Earl's Court, was it? Have I just imagined that? Yeah, Old Bopton Road. That's right. It was quite racy. Very racy, yeah. She's with all these other girls and, and you know, I suppose they're all good girls from good families, school friends. They must have... People must have thought, well, you know, there's nothing... It's quite safe. And of course, you know, Diana was, you know, she obviously decided a long time ago that she was going to save herself. As she said herself, I want to keep myself tidy for the right man. And, you know, the right man from a very early stage was Prince Charles. She really had no intention of missing other than uh, going along with the with the idea that, uh, you know, the, the, the royal family wanted people without a past. And she didn't have a past. She didn't want a past. She was completely perfect for them, ironically, in, in, in that way anyway. In your book, you've written as an I character, as Princess Diana's friend. Yes. Were you not tempted to write as Diana herself? No, not really, because actually I was going to say this. When, when Sarah mentioned Bulker's family, one of the problems with this book was she's a really huge subject, one of the most well-known people who ever lived and so on. How do you write about someone like that and make it sound convincing? Once I realised how many people were involved in bringing this marriage about... I started to get an idea of multiple points of view, lots of different people telling the story, which is the, the, the model I went with in the end. But I wanted to frame it all with one character. And it was really the pursuit of love and the character of Fanny in the pursuit of love, because I, I thought that the Spencers were a bit like the Radlets in the pursuit of love, especially at the beginning of, of my novel, because you know, Sandy, the friends in school, meets him for the first time. She thinks they're all so 
glamorous and so funny and so eccentric and so colourful and it's also amazing. And it's only as a novel progresses that you realise there's a slightly darker side to some of this and, and it's had really terrible term consequences for, for Diana and effects on her character and her outlook. But at the beginning, I wanted it all to to have that pursuit of love, crazy, radlet type of thing because they were so similar. There are instances of Lord Spencer wearing his pyjamas under his trousers and doing all kinds of eccentric things. And of course, her sister Sarah, who Diana hero worshipped, did things like ride the horse into the house and upstairs to the nursery and and there was a nanny who used to have a, a Ouija board, which she used to get out to the children and entertain them. And it was all quite sort of colourful and uh, unusual. It sounds like classic, very posh people shenanigans. Sounds like the sort of people who will get a sort of priceless kind of Persian carpet and yes. put it on the garden and have a picnic on it. It's the kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, I just wanted to ask you about, you keep saying all these people who were involved in getting her to marry the prince. Who were they and who were the sort of main players? Well, the Queen Mother was one of them, which I was thrilled about because uh, I love Queen Mother. She's the most amazing novel character. She's been, I've written about her before and she was a, a major character. She's been a major character in all three of my novels. In the late 70s, when this story really begins, Prince Charles wasn't married, obviously, and his family were desperate for him to marry. And one of the most desperate was the Queen Mother. She was completely determined to sort of, you know, make it happen and find the right girl. And it wasn't until a family wedding, the Spencer family wedding, the middle sister, Jane Spencer, got married to Robert Fellows, I mean, as as they still are. And it was at that wedding where the Queen Mother spotted Diana and just thought, oh, this might work. That was really great fun for me because I could just completely imagine this wedding at the guard's chapel and the old queen just spotting Diana coming down the aisle because she was actually wearing the most awful bridesmaid's dress as well. So it was all quite sort of interesting and colourful and, and, and slightly comical. So I imagined them having a conversation and then you know there were various other things happened after that which the Queen Mother would have had a hand in. The other person who I've roped into my story is a man. He's the valet to Prince Charles. His name was Stephen. He writes about Diana in his autobiography, which is very funny and, and quite sort of scurrilous. And, and I think they came out in America in the early 80s, my 12 years with Prince Charles and so on. Because he was a sort of the palace insider, the person who was close to Charles. But also, I mean, obviously I'm talking in terms of my novel here. Anybody who was embarking on, on any kind of relationship with Charles was going to come across Stephen. So that was another obvious person to have, you know, behind the scenes, pulling the strings, helping move things along. So it was those two mainly. And does Camilla feature in your novel at all? A young Camilla? This is a really amazing story, actually. The night before the wedding, she was staying in Clarence's house with the Queen Mother. And on her bed was a letter from Camilla saying, shall we have lunch? And this is obviously just before she gets married. Do you think that Camilla and Charles, rather like those sort of French kings, thought that their arrangement would just carry on and that Diana would understand it and accept it and that she understood the way things were and that they were going to have this rather sort of old-fashioned royal situation where the mistress would be the mentor for the wife? 5 to 7 p.m. girl. Do you think that's the case? Yeah, I think it's likely that's what they thought. I think... The Windsors assumed all kinds of things about Diana because of her background, and that may well have been among them. 
the awfully ironic and sad thing is that Diana was the she, she completely thought it was a love match. She completely worshipped Charles. There was no suggestion of any cynicism. She had no idea that that arrangement was even possible. I don't think. I mean, maybe towards the very end she did, but I don't think she ever went into it thinking that was how it was going to be. And, and in the middle of this kind of great cynical machine she was the only person who thought it was about love which i think is a is a kind of central tragedy of the whole story and one of the reasons why she was so angry and so let down afterwards but yeah i mean it's very possible that camilla and charles thought that and it wouldn't have been illogical because i mean obviously every princess of wales would have had to put up with a situation like that so yes i think that's quite likely but they couldn't have been more wrong That was Wendy Holden, whose new book, The Princess, is released on the day that we published this podcast. We'll put a link in the show notes so you can get a copy. Thanks so much for listening this week. If you enjoy the show, try some of our other episodes available wherever you got this one. If you want to get in touch, tweet me at Westminsterwag or drop a message in the bottle to Imogen, who's not on any social media. You've been listening to the Fever Half Hour with me, Sarah Ryan and Imogen Edwards-Jones. Thank you for listening.